Welcome to our second season of Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast, also our 41st episode. This is David Helvarg, and as always, my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello, everybody. I live in Richmond, California, and since moving here 14 years ago, have had the privilege of working with our guests today in a fight to save the last natural unprotected headland on San Francisco Bay called Point Malati. Andrea Soto is an organizer with Communities for a Better Environment, a musician, a host of his own radio show on KPFA in Berkeley, and a lifelong advocate for justice and human rights. Along with being a founder of the Richmond Progressive Alliance and other community groups, he's also on the steering committee of the Point Melati Alliance. Full disclosure, so am I. But before we get into Point Melati, Andreas, maybe you could give our listeners a sense of the bayfront city of Richmond, California. Well, thank you, David, and nice to meet you, Vicki. The the city of Richmond actually has one of the longest shorelines of any of the Bay Area cities because it's a peninsula sticking out from the East Bay uh, into the Bay Channel that separates San Francisco Bay from San Pablo Bay. Um, actually, what we call Point Richmond, where the Chevron refinery is, the town of Point Richmond, uh, and Point Molate, that whole structure used to be an island. And where the railroad and where the refinery are at used to be tidal marsh. Richmond was primarily agricultural from, you know, actually you could say indigenous times through the Spanish and Mexican times and into the early American times. But in the early 20th century, industrialization came and the shoreline was basically used as a, a dumping ground for a lot of industrial waste. So um, there was also port activity. That's what got Richmond started was being a center for uh, agricultural products that would then be shipped to places like San Francisco from the docks of Richmond. And of course, the refinery came, the railroad came, and that was in the first you know, five years of the 20th century. Later on, the Ford Motor Company came, Stauffer Chemical, and then ultimately the Kaiser Shipyards. And, and so the natural shoreline has been drastically modified from the original times. Then the place that we call Point Malate during World War II got converted in, from being a wine shipment operation that had been closed during Prohibition with the world's world largest winery of wine haven to becoming a naval fuels depot so uh the oil that chevron was making standard oil in california in those days would be pumped over the hills and uh out in the wharf and into sh naval ships from the uh, world war ii all the way through the vietnam war andreas you were raised in richmond uh, what was it like coming up uh in this city well, it was a time of tremendous change. Um, there was deindustrialization. Uh, there was the white flight start to occur and divestment as the city became more African-American. African-Americans started migrating here during World War II and continued to migrate until the mid-60s with the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, uh, sort of a second great migration to the West Coast. Being a Chicano, there were always Chicanos here, Native Americans. I grew up with Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans. So certainly a West Coast uh, multicultural kind of community. A lot of the whites were Southern whites whose parents were migrants uh, who came during the war years. Uh, but there were middle-class whites, there were Jewish folks. And so 
but it was basically cleaved because of the national, you know, racial situation along black and white lines. And, you know, Chicanos kind of migrated between both sides and got our own shit from the majority anyway. Um, And so then, uh, but uh, then when crack hit and semi-automatic weapons hit the street in the 80s, this changed the the real dynamic. Richmond was always a tough town, but then it became a deadly town. And uh, a lot of money moved out. Uh, drugs and violence moved in, as did political corruption and, and police corruption. And uh, so it was not always a good place to be. And a lot of people I grew up with, uh, you know, the first thing they'd say was, I can't wait to get out, you know, and try to move out somewhere. In the 1980s, I was working as a private investigator in the Bay Area and half my Drug and homicide cases were around Richmond. It was a hard time. And yet later it, it got better. A lot of political challenges started coming down and in calling for the head of the police chief and then the city manager who hired him, uh, this shook up the politics. And in 2003, we created the Richmond Progressive Alliance to challenge what we understood as progressives that the corporations were controlling the politics through the economy and were pitting community members against each other uh, by buying people off and giving people favors and, you know, uh, using the police to suppress certain people. And so uh, we started organizing, stood up and, you know, here we are 18 years later, we have an active, majority on the city council uh, who are trying to undo damage done by non-RPA majority city councils. Um, so it's a, it's a very lively time to be in Richmond, as it always is. Uh, but now the pendulum has swung in our favor. So it sounds like you've been doing a lot of work around social justice and really trying to work with community and community organizing. Um, why Point Malati. Like, why are you spending your time there, and what's so special about this place? I first got involved with the issues related to Point Malate when uh, the proposal to establish an Indian casino was uh, put on the table, and I saw this tidal wave of support starting to build from uh, the political class and and their minions in the community. And uh, I had already gotten engaged in a struggle to stop and limit uh, the activities at Casino San Pablo, because I understand casino type gambling is a capitalistic parasite on working class communities. Wealthy people can gamble in the stock market and generally have some kind of insurance behind it so they can make money even if they lose money. But poor people go to the casino and just give it away. And so I knew that was not a good thing for our community. And and so by being engaged in that struggle in Sao Paulo, immediately we had this major battle on our, you know, doorfront in Richmond. And that was in 2003 when that really came out into the light. And that became uh, a factor in 2004's election. And a lame duck city council, literally a week after the election, before the new council could come in, uh, signed a contract with the developer and the tribe that has gotten us still in federal court to this day. 
And so um, for me, it's a combination of stopping the casino, but then, hey, this is a tremendous asset for the community. When I was a kid and a teenager and we went there, it was a hideaway, you know, but it was, um, if, but there was no real infrastructure recreational infrastructure there and there was the leftover buildings from the war years and wine haven and things like that that were now no longer in use at least when i was growing up and so now the opportunity to turn it into a world-class park that not only will be beneficial to the health and the the development of people in the community but also uh it can become a place where people will want to go to see historic uh, elements, to see the indigenous history, you know, the Chinese history, the Mexican history, all these different uh, tapestries and layers of history that are still relevant to our community life today. And so the potential of it being a community asset is, is so amazing. Uh, but yet, because of the historic legacy of corruption in Richmond um, and political backroom deals is why we're in federal litigation now, but we're still out there working and talking about these issues in the community while it's still being fought in the courts. And, and this was amazing when I moved to Richmond in 2007 and left this botanist took me out there. Um, again, some people have called Point Malati the most beautiful part of the Bay nobody's ever heard of. 414 acres, uh, uh, one of the last native uh, grassland watersheds connecting with the healthiest eelgrass beds in the Bay, over 650 species identified, including 13 pair nesting osprey, wild turkey and deer. And, and, and an amazing location that, you know, quite frankly, if, if Richmond were a wealthy white community, would have been a park a generation ago. But because it's a low-income community of color, this is a battle where in 2010, we took it to a vote. The casino developer was saying, yeah, we'll give you all jobs as maids and security guards. People voted 58 to, you know, 42% against the casino. When I wrote my book, The Golden Shore, I wrote about this victory we'd had. And lo and behold, turned around, we got a new mayor and he cut a deal with the failed casino developer. And now it's it's game on again, as, as you were saying, uh, Andreas. I mean, you were there. You, you played music at the opening of the beach park, and we thought the rest of the beautiful acreage would also become park. Yeah, well, I think what's important is that because this has been such a long, drawn-out process, we've been able to build a network of allies, not just folks who are concerned about the environment, uh, but the East Bay Regional Parks District is now committed to working with us to make this uh, a park that they would actually manage. Uh, and so, uh, and they are the experts at managing these large regional parks. Richmond itself as a city, uh, through its Park and Recreation Department, is actually underparked. And most of the parks are little small corner neighborhood parks with, uh, you know, some kind of uh, equipment on it for kids to play around at. Uh, and that is not really conducive to really getting a break from the asphalt jungle of the streets of Richmond. You know, you need to be able to get a place where, you know, you're near the water 
you're near nature and you can, you know, relax, clear your head, you know, and forget about the refinery on the other side of the ridge. And, and you know, it, it, people need that kind of thing. And so if you go to the urban core of Richmond, uh, where most of the working class lives, you know, their houses are relatively small and they have uh, virtually no yards. And so parks become this important place for the working class to uh, relax, enjoy themselves, gather uh, in in family groups and have parties when you don't ha can't afford a hall. You can't afford a hall, you go to the park. And, and this was uh, during the COVID epidemic we're still in. We saw there's only, there's only the public beach park at Point Melody. It's a few acres out of over 400 acres. But all through the epidemic, we've seen the city of Richmond, the residents of all class and color, bringing their kids there, enjoying it, being exposed to the bay. When when we've brought high school kids out there from JFK High School in Richmond High, and they'll be sitting there on the edge learning something. And then an osprey comes down, grabs a fish out of the water. The kids go ballistic. You know, that that exposure uh, to nature is is what, you know, the youth and all the people of Richmond deserve. Right. And there, you know, people who go fishing out there, even though, you know, shouldn't eat the fish in the bay. And, uh, but it, it, it's, it's really what's amazing about Point Molate is because it is just on the other side of the ridge from, uh, Chevron, it's really been isolated for many, many years and continues to be isolated. And yet it's just, you know, one freeway exit away from the Iron Triangle. And so it's this tremendous resource. Now, of course, the Iron Triangle being a rough neighborhood, a very urban. The neighborhood. original part of downtown Richmond, which at one point was a thriving commercial center. Uh, you know, there used to be. When, uh, when Richmond was building warships in World War II. Yeah, and there were 13 movie theaters on McDonald Avenue at one point. So, you know, it, when I was a kid, my, we lived in Sao Paulo. We'd ride the bus into McDonald with my mom and uh, we'd spend the whole day. It was like the mall going up and down McDonald Avenue to department stores and restaurants. And there was health clubs, record stores, all those kind of things. But then after the uh, African-American uprisings in 1966 and 1968, that's when we saw the direct divestment. And that was Standard Oil and the Chamber of Commerce getting together. They, um, they uh, dismantled a tank farm where they stored their oil and pumped it over to the refinery. They dismantled that and turned that into the Hilltop Mall. And uh, they divested from downtown. All the businesses that used to be down there became the original tenants up at the mall. And uh, now the mall is closing. You know, it's a failed uh, project. And downtown Richmond has never really recovered. And it went from being working class white when I was a kid to becoming African-American in the late 70s into the 80s and through into the early 90s. And now is an overwhelmingly Latino neighborhood. And the whole city of Richmond is plurality Latino and San Pablo is majority so you know demographics have never been stable in in the bay area period and those were the particular dynamics in richmond so andreas um 
people nationally, they have this image of Richmond as this very progressive town. Um, but that changed when we got our last mayor because he's proposing building exclusive high-end housing at Point Melati. And as you say, McDonald downtown, McDonald Avenue is hollowed out. So, so Richmond's progressive, but it's not ex explained. Well, I would say that the work of the Richmond Progressive Alliance has helped make progressive voices in Richmond come together and to work together on electoral campaigns and on other social issue campaigns throughout its history. RPA had a big role in stopping the casino at Point Malate. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, it's what are we up against? I call Richmond a corporatocracy, and that means ruled by the corporations. And so the businesses control the economy. And yet what uh, the people can do is control the government, which can help shape the economy and certainly the economy of the city government. So in 2014, I reported on the election where using Citizens V, Chevron basically tried to buy back a majority of the city council and it was defeated. But the progressives in a compromise agreed to let this pro-developer old white guy, Tom Butt, become mayor run as mayor. And Chevron was defeated, but the corporate mindset perhaps was not. He then cut a deal to sell Point Melati for a high-end housing development and split the profits with the failed casino developer. So does that more or less bring us up to the present moment? Yeah, yeah. And I would agree that uh, Tom Butt was a Trojan horse in that election. Uh, and, you know, uh, in retrospect, that was, uh, you know, a mistake on the part of the Richmond Progressive Alliance to back him and think that he would live up to his agreement to appoint an RPA person to fill the vacancy of his seat if he were elected. And uh, since he reneged on that, uh, you know, he has been the, the chief RPA uh, boogeyman uh, in trying to blame the RPA for everything, even when the RPA isn't in power. And so the RPA is Andre. Yeah. The Richmond progressive Alliance. Okay. And, and so, um, yeah. And so I think, you know, Tom, Butt is nearing the end of his second term. He cannot succeed himself, but he has done plenty of damage in the interim. Uh, there's a broad alliance to protect Point Melati to turn it not into a housing development, but a park. It's got the it's got support from commercial fishermen who want to protect its eelgrass beds from uh, housing advocates who want mixed housing downtown, not not gentrification of the shoreline. It's got, uh, you know, a growing population, the Ohlone, of course, whose original sacred sites are there. Um, so are you hopeful? I mean, this has been a long long battle for Point Melati. Um, the present strategy is raise the money to buy out the bad actors, the Southern California developer, the failed casino uh, developer. Um, you think we're going to win? I do believe that we will win. And I think that um, momentum is on our side. Um, and I think as more and more people become aware of the place and recognizing that we have moved the ball to the point where the tribe and the developer, Jim Levine, uh, have both said, hey, look, 
we can agree to a price. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to find the price to agree upon. And so this is, you know, legal extortion as permitted by law. And, um, you know, if we had some tech benefactors who are looking for a way to uh, make the tax savings after killing off on COVID, uh, we have uh, a place in Richmond that you can invest in and uh, your legacy would be forever renowned. <laughs> so Andres, I wanted to um, go back just a little bit, a bigger interview sure. and talking with you and your experience as a community organizer. Mm -hmm. So with your experience in, with uh, Point Pilate and with all of the other elements, tell us more about what it takes to be a community organizer. How do you go about it? What are some of the strengths and just maybe some of your like most intense challenges as a community organizer in your efforts? Sure. Well, at first, one of the first things I want to say is that um, I kind of stumbled into it. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, but it. I've always been engaged in it since I was a young person. I was exposed to community organizers and watched what they did um, when I was in community college at Contra Costa College. Uh, I got recruited to help out the United Farm Workers struggle. So this is during the great boycott, the yellow wine boycott, Bruce Church lettuce, Safeway. And so I learned a lot just by being a community supporter and watching other people. Uh, my real objective later on after I went to Berkeley was politics. Uh, and I had a day gig working in, in helping people get jobs and improve their job readiness and, and that sort of thing for the city of Richmond. But then because I was also an advocate for, uh, you know, Latino rights, that put me in conflict with the city administration. And so they, uh, they, they got rid of my whole unit of five people just to get rid of me since they couldn't fire me. Right. So, so, so it was a big mess, but you know, I learned from them and I went on to work in violence prevention and, and I took many of the skills that I learned from these other organizers in working in gun control policy. And I started doing that through the county health department by creating an ordinance and, you know, building support for that and getting it passed by, uh, you know, city councils. And then it got to the board of supervisors and it blew up into like a regional and national issue. And um, with that, then I started working on a statewide level and working with people all around the state. And I started working in the capital, essentially as the lobbyist for the initiative. I mean, there were there were 20 community coalitions around the state each year. There was a cadre of 10 community leader fellows and 10 academic fellows. There are research institutes, soup to nuts, founded by the funded by the California Wellness Foundation. So I was the policy director. So I work on a number of uh, significant gun control bills that to this day, uh, California is ahead of the rest of the country. And so I only started working directly on the environmental uh, issues with Communities for a Better Environment in August of 2012. And so six days after I got hired, Chevron blew up in the, one of the most uh, catastrophic explosions in their history, almost killed 20 workers. 
And um, the organizing that came around that was all a, like, it was like all of a sudden a tsunami. Uh, and so, you know, it was like working seven days a week for about a year straight. We had uh, um, an anniversary march where we had over 3,000 people march on Chevron from the Richmond BART station, over 200 people, 209 people voluntarily arrested. Um, and so out of that organizing spun off several different coalitions that are still active to this day. The Sunflower Alliance uh, was directly related to the logistics of the uh, march itself. The BACMED network was people who are interested in working on policy uh, within the Bay Area Air Quality Management District jurisdiction and rules on refineries and their operations. Uh, we created a local coalition to look at Richmond in, uh, on a broader scale for a just transition for our community and away from an economy rooted in fossil fuels and uh, consumption, uh, you know, that is destroying the planet to one that is rooted in renewables and sustainable uh, energy and economies. And that's called the Richmond Our Power Coalition. And we include the, uh, the prison industrial complex as one of the extractive industries that has impacted our community uh, because we also recognize human resources, not just industrial resources as part of the extraction in our community. So um, all these things are an outgrowth of that. And, and so for me, it's really just about bringing people together who want to work on something together. I hear that you are a musician. So tell us how you bring that musical joy into your life before we say goodbye. I always enjoyed music as a kid, but I went to Helms Junior High in San Pablo, started playing in the band and then the jazz band and then at Richmond High. And then um, uh, when I was a, in my, summer between my junior and senior year, me and my friends started our first band emulating the music we enjoyed. And uh, that became what I did for the next five years. Uh, but I always aspired as a jazz musician. And so, uh, you know, through my life, I wanted to also be a multi-instrumentalist. So, you know, playing flute and clarinets as well as saxophones and percussion and writing and arranging. Um, and then I've been performing all my life and I enjoy a variety of music. So I, uh, I've been a longtime member of the West County Wind Symphonic Band playing bass clarinet. Junior Sportney big band playing lead alto saxophone and then playing in funk and Latin bands, mostly on tenor sax all my life. And then uh, just recently uh, I got coming up a uh, gig playing in a horn section for a ska band. So that'll be uh -huh. another first. Well, if and I ever get to California, which I plan to do, um, I would love to hear you play. So uh, keep that practice going and uh, well, you. I'm on YouTube. You can, you can see me on YouTube. A lot of performances are on YouTube or my Facebook page. So. We'll and do Andre it. Soto, friend, hero, thanks for being on Rising Todd, the Ocean podcast. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Vicki, for having me and helping to share the stories. And now a word from our sponsor. 
That's the sound of a North American right whale. With fewer than 400 left along the Atlantic coast, the right whale will soon be extinct if we don't act now. 80% of their deaths are caused by entanglement with fishing gear, including ropes from lobster and crab pots. That's why we need to begin deploying ropeless fishing gear technology that is both practical and affordable. With your support, we can protect the livelihoods of fishers and the lives of endangered right whales. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of the environment is salty. To learn more, go to Sierra Club Marine Team on Facebook. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.